2: What is it all about? Here you go. you want to try a chive? Yeah. I'm a big fan of chives.
1: Are you? I was Uh gonna say, people don't eat them all
2: that frequently. Mmm. Oh wow. Farming. It hasn't changed much since we humans first started harvesting wheat and barley in the Fertile Crescent back around 10,000 BC. Of course there's been advances. The plow, fertilizers, genetically modified seeds, but broadly farmers are still playing the same high stakes game they were all those millennia ago. Plant your crops and then hope and pray the weather cooperates. But mother nature is increasingly unpredictable and the stakes are higher than ever. We now have more than 7 billion mouths to feed. There's got to be a better way, doesn't there? Well, this week's guest on Danny in the Valley thinks there is. In fact, he thinks he's found it. Matt Barnard is the co-founder of Plenty, an indoor farming startup, that just raised an astounding $200 million from the SoftBank Vision Fund, an investment goliath recently formed by Saudi Arabia and Japan's SoftBank to place huge bets on the next generation of technologies that they think will change the world. And they're not the only investors, of course. Others include Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, and Eric Schmidt of Google. Wow. I visited Plenty's giant warehouse in South San Francisco last week to see for myself just how it works.
0: So, this gets much closer to what you'll see um, in one of our production farms that's actually going to market. Um, what is this? is this? This is Rainbow Chart. It's amazing. Yeah.
2: Now the facility was under heavy construction while I was there, but I did get to see a few crop rooms after, of course, I suited up in a white hazmat suit, put little booties over my shoes, sanitized my hands, and had my digital recorders sanitized. But what I saw were 15 foot high towers of lettuce and chives and chard growing sideways toward perfectly symmetrical vertical rows of what looked like little Christmas lights.
0: What you see here though that's not really representative of what you'll see in a farm is each crop, each varietal has its temperature, air quality, humidity, lighting needs.
1: Ultimately what the farms will be are 1200 square foot rooms with really one crop per room.
2: This one room is like the equivalent of a very big farm in the real world, the
0: traditional world. Yes, Um, A really good analogy that we use sometimes that helps people to visualize is if you take um, a couple of soccer fields what a conventional farm can grow in those, we can grow in a
2: goal. Yeah. <laughs> in a trailer back outside the warehouse, I sat down with Barnard to talk about the future of food and why farming is so ripe for
3: disruption. Hope you enjoy it. I grew up on a commercial fruit farm. From the time I was a kid, what I was clear on is that I liked everything we grew on our farm, I loved it. And whenever we brought fresh produce at the store, I didn't like it. Now, here in California, it's a bit of a different story because we're right near where most of those crops are grown when you talk about fresh fruits and vegetables. But in Wisconsin, if you're not growing it yourself, the rest of the year you're getting things that are grown uh, in California or in another country, and they're spending days, weeks, and thousands of miles in trucks and distribution centers. So I knew that I didn't like what we didn't grow on the farm. I then, as an adult, you know, have moved around the U.S., and now living in California, close to the heart of fruit and vegetable production, there are things that I love that I didn't know that I liked. I didn't know I liked watermelon. I couldn't understand why people ate it. And now I eat the stuff like four days a week. Yeah, from, from Good watermelon is it great. It, it's, oh, it's not mealy. Exactly. And yeah. in Wisconsin, it's always mealy. Right. Oh, it's terrible. Because <laughs> it's already spent, it's already spent yeah. a week on a truck. So I left the farm planning to never go, come back. Because what I experienced of it as a kid was that it's pretty hard because your livelihood is completely out of your control.
2: So did you actually work out in the fields and pick apples and stuff?
3: As a kid, I thought I was working out in the field. Right, I understand. Right, but knowing right. what I know now. You um, weren't being that th- big of a th- th- That was theater, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, so then as a professional, I kind of grew up as a professional in the in the wireless telecommunications industry and ended up running a firm that engineered, designed, and deployed the networks for all the wireless carriers.
2: So you built wireless infrastructure? That's right. So are you an engineer?
3: I uh, play one on TV. Right. No, I have built and run companies mostly populated by engineers, but I am not an engineer by training. I did that. I think of it as utility-scale technology infrastructure, and I view uh, what we're doing here as essentially building out a global agricultural utility where we're bringing reliable... Food production of food that's much higher quality year-round to people everywhere. I kind of got that exposure to engineering it and deploying on a mass scale, you, you know, utility scale technology. And then uh, from there, I was in the private equity world for a bit. I spent time looking for ways to invest in water technology. It was there that I learned that seventy to eighty percent of all the world's water consumption is due to ag. Uh, And so if if, if you want to fix the water system, you got to fix ag. And then finally, I got back into utility scale technology. I was brought in to help scale a firm that did cellular smart grid. These are large ecosystems of hardware and software for electric water and gas utilities to help them kind of both spread demand across the day cycle, as well as to damp down demand a bit. That business ended up getting bought by the industry giant, and I went about looking for the next thing to do. And what company was that? Uh, really? it, it was purchased by a company called Itron. Right. So I I went about looking for the next thing I wanted to do, and, and 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 found this industry. Is it an industry? Well, it's not. I found I found what was then at best it was a cottage industry, you know. But it was it was this kind of nascent area of exploration at that point in time, and so we really started off by looking at hey, let's understand the entire business from from seed all the way through uh, into someone's home. And how do we get people, uh, you know, better food for the same as or less money, and make it more accessible to everywhere. Because, you know, here in the United States, for example, we've got 4% of the world's population, and we're consuming almost a a third, more than a quarter of the world's fresh produce. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, yeah.
2: Actually consuming or purchasing? because a lot of it is thrown away right because well
3: sh- sure so yes this is this is on a purchase basis sure this is on a on a like per dollar of purchasing i would say that the us it's probably has has the most robust system of counting what is purchased so there's a little bit of probably a disproportionate counting but also we have you know almost 20% of the world's gdp so that that drives a little bit of the disparity as well and also a very rich and efficient logistics system which is super important for fresh fruits and vegetables to travel thousands of miles and still even have an inkling of saleability left yeah. to them.
2: You sell that last company, and then you just kind of stumble upon this, or obviously you had some interest in this. Yes. But how do you go about, from, go about saying, okay, well, I like farming, but farming sucks, yeah. <laughs> to I'm going to create an indoor farming company? Yeah.
3: It tweaked my interest just enough to really engage in a you know, a deep dive into the landscape of agriculture and the food system generally. So we we mapped out the entire uh, system, like I said, from seed all the way into someone's home.
2: And is we is this your team from the previous companies that you brought along? Or?
3: Uh, so one person that I was introduced to, one of our co-founders here, through actually a, a company that I'd worked with, uh, an investment firm that I worked with in the past. We started there. Eventually met Nate Story, who's another co-founder and our chief science officer, who's been working on. Uh, this in related growing technology for, you know, a good decade or so, starting with his PhD work. And we started mapping out, hey, th- these are all of the the people, the companies, the the parts of the chain that that touch the food as it goes from seed into someone's home. You know, how do, how do we fix this?
2: Was there anything that you found particularly shocking or like, oh my God, this is totally inefficient?
3: I was never so clear that perishable food spent so much time in the chain. It's spending about two weeks in the supply chain, much of it in the store. So if I go
2: to Safeway and buy a banana, that's probably what, I don't know, been picked three
3: weeks ago, a month ago? So crop by crop, this can differ pretty w- yeah. w- widely. Rarely do you get something in the store that's less than a week old from the day it was picked. That's about as good as it gets.
2: Which is interesting because, for example, I'm from here, but I used to live in the UK, Yeah, and the tomatoes are terrible yes in the UK yes they're ter- because I think most they're, places yeah they're imported from Spain or from Italy uh-huh. and then you go to Spain or Italy and the tomatoes are amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah but something happens or I think the requirements for uh-huh. transport mean that they have to be picked too early or whatever they're overripe or underripe or what have you it just yeah there,
3: there, are, there are several things so the supply chain has done some amazing things in order to get people more fresh food but it, it has truly distorted what fresh means Like if you look at an apple, for example, there are only two apple harvests a year, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. So if you're eating an apple in the Northern Hemisphere that's outside of September and October, you're eating an apple that's about a year old. You'll notice, like sometimes you get a nice crisp, sweet apple, and other times you get that mealy texture you mentioned before. The taste will be very muted and often just gone. That's because what they do is they put them in indoor cellars and gas them with a heavy gas like nitrogen to crowd out the oxygen so that they age much more more slowly slowly and they don't don't spoil. Right. But after about a month or so, they're essentially nothing but fiber, some sugar and water. They've lost most of their nutritional content and then they start to lose their flavor. But they're edible. You know, they're saleable yeah. and edible. And so if I
2: ate one of those apples mm-hmm. and then I went to an apple orchard in season and took another one off and you analyze those on a cellular level, would they have different nutritional content?
3: Oh, you would know. Yeah. So, so the compounds that hold the flavors that we care yeah. about, the bolder the flavor, the more volatile the compound, generally speaking, and flavor profile the boldness of it is correlated with nutritional content. So the less taste something has, generally speaking, the less nutrient content it has. Right. You'll notice if you eat an apple fresh off the tree, you're going to get uh, a very different experience than what you get in the, in the store. Or like you,
2: fr- you go fishing and you eat a fish that you've just caught. It tastes entirely different from what you purchased in the right. store.
3: right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know about the thousands of miles. If I had to thought about it, I'd know. But I, I didn't know about the thousands of miles. I didn't know about the weak minimum. I didn't know apples are a year old on average when you eat them. Tomatoes, the reason they are, as you said, is in part because of some great innovations that have helped to drive down the cost of the tomato. Like, for example, selecting over generations for plants that color uniformly when they are ripe Made it easier for the for pickers to, go to get quickly, the timing right yeah to go right. quickly through the field and just pick what's right. what's ready that though has the side effect of now reducing the amount of sugars that the that the fruit can produce by almost a third, so now you have a tomato with much less sugar content. You have a tomato that's been bred for toughness so it can be shipped thousands of miles, like California produces more fresh market tomatoes than any country on the earth. And then those, most of those tomatoes end up traveling thousands of miles to get somewhere. But So in order to make that true, you've got to make a pretty tough beefsteak tomato. So that's yeah. why I'm betting that you've never eaten a beefsteak tomato like an apple because that's not a fun experience. No. You've got a tough skin. Yeah. The skin, by the way, can withstand twice the amount of impact than your car bumper by regulation here in the United States of America. How can that be true? Yeah, it's, it's true.
2: It's true. So because I, it's funny you say that because I was just... We were driving the other weekend back from Tahoe and I just saw a couple of trucks uh-huh. loaded full of tomatoes and they were just thrown in like piles uh-huh, exactly. they were not protected yeah so anyway. the ones
3: on the bottom have to be able yeah. to understand all that crushing and I was weight.
2: just thinking there's no way that there's those you know most of those tomatoes are going to be terrible But <laughs>
3: yeah, no no, no the, the, well they're they're saleable because they're so tough right we grow one thing to know about what we do is because it, we're, we have so much control over the growing environment and the supply chain We grow completely different varietals than what are sold in the store. So we'll never grow a beefsteak tomato, for example, because that thing hasn't been bred for user experience. It hasn't been bred for our enjoyment and delight. It's been bred for trucks. So we grow varietals that were bred over generations, heirloom varietals, that people grew because they were amazing. You know, like, let's let's grow grandma's heirloom tomatoes. Right, out in their back garden. Exactly. So we grow those varietals because those were bred and selected for enjoyment, not for trucks. Iceberg lettuce is... Terrible. it's, It's terrible. Iceberg lettuce, it only exists because in 1940, the way that we shipped lettuce was to pile a bunch of bowling balls in a freight container pour hundreds of pounds of ice on top of them and then ship it 3,000 miles across the country and if you take the sweet crispy stuff that we grow today that has that actually has nutrient content rather than just being a ball of water yeah, that would be immediately unsaleable if we poured hundreds of pounds of ice on top of it it would just go bad or get crushed it would, or, it would just get crushed yeah. yeah you know we don't have to solve for 3,000 miles in a truck so we're never growing iceberg
2: lettuce so what's the idea then is to create a network of Warehouses, farms, plenty farms in every community. So, like in every big city. Yeah. I mean, how are you rolling it? I mean, what's the kind of the near term, the long term?
3: So, near term, there are five hundred communities around the world with a million people or more. Uh, cities, big cities, metropolitan areas. Metropolitan areas, yeah, right. with 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 a million people or more. So, we'll start there because five hundred communities is a lot to cover. So, we have a lot of plenty farms to build. But that's what that's what we're working towards is a plenty farm or or two or six in each of these towns. So you just raised a boatload of money. We did two hundred million. It was it was two hundred million. Yes. How far does that get you? That gets us pretty far because if you think about our farms as uh, as infrastructure, infrastructure typically gets built out with the cheapest capital possible, which is debt. And so we plan to use the cheapest capital we can to build out most of these farms 200 millions of down payment so to speak in a way yeah as we start to grow you know we also then have the cash or the money that we're building as we grow to to use as well right but so
2: how many so how many locations will you be able to build before you need to raise more money
3: so the answer to that i would say both depends it may take us beyond the constraints of this podcast <laughs> for, for, for me to explain what it depends means. Yeah. But this definitely sets us on course towards being able to build out, build out a farm in each of those communities. And are you
2: starting in the US? Are you going immediately internationally all over the world? And
3: We're going to be international a lot sooner than uh, than people may think. In 2018, we will be both domestic and international. We're adding several locations in 2018. By 2019, we'll be deploying multiple farms per month.
2: Are you going to be uh, solving Britain's tomato problem anytime soon? Your tomatoes will be much better. In 2018?
3: Not in 2018. Right. That will be 2019 or 2020 before we're helping to solve right. the UK's So a few tomatoes. more years of
2: mealy, tasteless yes. tomatoes. Yes, so
3: I apologize
1: for those two years. <laughs> <laughs> but soon.
0: That's stamps.com code program.
2: So, in you have some very interesting investors, obviously. You have SoftBank. Yes. So, how much money have you raised total? When was the company founded?
3: Yeah. So, in, in total, over time, $238 million. You'll see some other announcements soon.
2: Further fundraisings or Co- the cor- further correct. closings of this
3: uh, or no, they'll, they'll be different and, right. and, and distinct. Softbank was our lead obviously in this in this round. They're extremely important because as we as we build out a global agricultural company, food food company, Nomasa and his team there at Softbank has, have been building an international business with an international network that's extremely effective at executing for a business with a global orientation that's centered around technology for how we get people better food. They're a great partner
2: because they're I mean, they've come in and have really kind of just up the stakes or up the scales of things here because they're putting, they put 200 million into you and a couple hundred million into a bunch of companies. And so their 200 million check
3: seems to be like a $10 million check from everybody They, they have. Well, what's super interesting is, I mean, if you, if you look at venture capital, which is, you know, spent much of the last century building as an industry, they essentially came in with their one fund, their fund one. Which is a
2: hundred billion this is the one with Saudi Arabia. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So $100 billion for the
3: SoftBank Vision Fund. They've increased the size of the global venture capital industry by about 130%. What's interesting to me about it is that as, as you look out over the history of venture capital, what's becoming more and more true over time is that one or two companies end up with uh, a lion's share of the market. Because in order to, whether it's search and Google, to get customers the best experience, the scale of these data sets ends up mattering a lot in terms of delivering the best experience to users, whether it's you know Facebook, Amazon. Being say, able to
2: pattern recognize and
3: yeah tailor things accordingly exactly the the scaled data sets just a- end up mattering a ton, you know with this recognition in mind, SoftBank is saying okay look it doesn't make sense anymore to invest. Investing in 30 or 50 companies across an industry once we have enterprise cloud business A it doesn't really make sense because so many of these aren't really going to warrant venture type investments. So let us pick who we think is in the lead, or who we, after we've evaluated the industry, let's pick the leader. And bet, p- push all your chips in. And that's right, and build the leader. And in agriculture and in getting people better food f- for less money, the size of the data set again is, is going to matter right. a lot and already does matter a lot in terms of, uh, yeah. Cause there's
2: like half a dozen others that's ch- right. doing what you guys are doing. Right. Exactly. And you also have Jeff
3: Bezos. Yes. He, he was in earlier. He, he was, he, he, he came in, he was one of the co-leads in the A round, in our A round financing, uh, along with, uh, Eric Schmidt's, uh, innovation endeavors, uh, which is his venture arm. Right. And, uh, and, uh, DCM Finistere, which is an agriculture-focused fund, Data Collective, all participated in that right. in, in that round. Do Schmidt and
2: Bezos? Do they actually get involved personally? Do they like sit down across the table and be like, what's, what's, what are you doing"?
3: Uh, so, so, so Eric, Eric does. Uh, uh, Eric does. Uh, J- Jeff is a little bit harder because he's um, he's up the coast quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so that makes it that, that makes it a bit harder. But uh, I've received great counsel from uh, you know from from Eric. Right.
2: I mean, strategically, obviously, Amazon's getting more and more into food. They mm-hmm. just bought Whole Foods. Is there is there a path there to actually get your stuff? I mean, I guess the your model is hyper local, so right. maybe that doesn't quite work, but.
3: Well, so if you look at their uh, distribution center, uh, or system rather, local ends up mattering a lot for them too. Whereas most of what they sell today, it, it doesn't have a local bent to it. To get into grocery, it really does. Just stepping back from Amazon and just speaking about online grocery, generally speaking, online grocery has a, a massive challenge. What's true about grocery is that fresh produce drives six times more traffic into the grocery store than the next highest traffic driver other than milk and it blows away milk too right so it blows it's like 3x higher than milk.
2: We have a really 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 overpriced local market mm-hmm the no, only reason we go there is because they have really nice produce. Yes. But it's like the only thing we buy there because everything else is like, do you want to pay $12 for four cookies? And I'm like, no, I'm good.
3: <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I know these markets. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have one near me as yeah, well. I'm sure. Uh, and they have the corner market, uh, the, the neighborhood market nailed. Yeah. What, what they know is that I have to spend another 20 minutes round trip to go anywhere else. Exactly. And so they completely nail me on fresh produce and milk. <laughs> Now, if I'm online, I can't see it. Someone I don't know is picking it out, so I'm just not going to buy it. So if you look at the data on fresh produce and you look at the percentage of a grocery cart online versus in a store... You're not going to buy fresh fruit and vegetables online. That's right. They're they're buying the dead stuff. And so that's where we're we're extremely excited to help out online grocers is by bringing credibility to fresh produce. Uh, And with
2: Amazon, you can have your... Beautiful iceberg lettuce delivered by drone.
3: Yeah, that's right. This, this is that, the future. That, that's right. Except for it, it won't be uh, iceberg; it'll be a sweet crisp lettuce. Of course, yeah. It'll be you know Celtic <laughs> Crunch or something like that. You know.
2: So, but will you be selling directly to people, or will uh, will you be selling you know Safeway Plenty at Found at Safeway or Amazon or whatever? So, so,
3: as of today, it's the it's it's the latter. But our our goal is over time. We we are investing in and pursuing models that get the freshest food into people's homes. And so there's more than one right answer there, but we're we're investing across the spectrum to do that.
2: Going back to where we started, so you have this big warehouse. Mm-hmm. How does it outperform mm-hmm. the field? And just in terms of inputs, cost, time, what are you doing that you can't do at a
3: farm? Right. So I'll bring back the analogy of the outdoors and even a greenhouse being essentially a a manufacturing business without control and ask any manufacturer in the world whether that's something they want to do, and you'll get an emphatic no. So inside what happens is, first of all, we remove seasonality. So now we don't have seasons. Seasons are, you know, there's obviously the sun and the the temperature and the heat and the humidity and, and all of that. But all of those things also influence a community of bacteria in the soil that is essential to grow great tasting plants and have the kind of productivity that you need and because those bacteria are necessary to break down nutrients. For example, in the field you need to add a lot of nutrients because after you've grown in the field for a couple seasons, the soil is is exhausted. We eliminate seasonality in that we can keep the bacterial community in the root zone consistent consistent in the way that every crop needs to taste the best and produce at its best. We can give the plants exactly and only the nutrients they need. So we use a fraction of the nutrients that the field uses because we have a closed loop system. You know, what the plants don't use, we just feed back to them. And we use a fraction of the water, as I mentioned. So 1% the water. We have control over, you know, what the plants emit. We have control over what they take up. We can send back through what they don't. In the Salinas Valley, which is the most efficient place on the planet to grow lettuce, they're spending 15 gallons of water to grow a single head of iceberg bowling ball lettuce. 15 gallons for terrible lettuce. 15 gallons. 15 gallons. So we are spending less than one-fifth of a gallon to grow that same head of lettuce and driving that number ever further lower. So 99% less, roughly.
2: Just because you're not losing it through evaporation
3: and... and... And because, you know, once it goes into the soil, you can't tell the water where to go. If it goes past the root zone, it's gone. For us, if a plant doesn't use it, we just send it back through. Plus, once soil has been used for a couple of years, it starts to lose its, um, its water retention capacity. Whereas it once was a store for water, now that water is going straight down into the water table. And so that's why you see, for example, chemical and nutrient loads in our water table increasing. Agrochemicals are, are getting into the water table much faster. So it also decreases the efficiency of nutrients in the field because the soil can't hold them for as long. We're just able to grow plants more efficiently. And because we don't have to mine the sun, we're growing them tall. So if, when you walk into our growing rooms, you'll see, you'll see walls of plants 20 feet tall. You know, instead of having one plant in a footprint, you can end up having 40 plants. Right. So, uh, right. You know, so just a, lo- a lot more... Um, it's like
2: building um, plant
3: skyscrapers. That's right. Yeah. So people have moved inside and given ourselves the perfect environment. Now we're allowing plants to do the same thing. And no pesticides. That's right. No fertilizer. We have to feed nutrients to the plants just like happens out in the field. We just need a lot less of it. We don't have to feed them as much, and they end up with higher nutrient content anyway because uh, we're, we're growing so much more efficiently. So are these organic? Yes, <laughs> we're the only indoor farm that is certified organic. And
2: how is all of this controlled? Is there like a agricultural AI, or, or is there a, there must be some software or something that is yes. kind of keeping all of this under control?
3: We use you know machine learning and, and deep learning to do a couple things. One is to control pests in a very targeted, non-chemical way. It allows us to watch what's happening in the plant. We can use machine vision and the infrared spectrum to watch what's happening in the plant and essentially help the plants grow as fast as possible by making sure their nutrient balance is where it should be at all times and for all stages of growth, right, because day one is different than day five is different than day 12. And then we're also using it to do things like um, drive our input costs and energy consumption as low as possible. And for qualitative characteristics, like, hey, how do we make sure this is spinach that a five-year-old will eat? Kale that everyone will actually enjoy eating and that kind of thing.
2: Presumably this all happens a lot faster. Effectively, there's never a nighttime. Uh, There's never
3: like a lack of sunlight. I don't know if that works, if that's optimal or not. It depends on the crop. Some of them will just work like workhorses, you know, day in and day out. Some of them we give a little bit of a break to. But you're right. uh, Generally speaking, they're receiving a lot more light and in more intense light, kind of. Think of it like they're getting high noon light all day long. They're growing anywhere from 2 to 10 times faster, just depending on which crop we're talking about. And we're getting, instead of 1 to 4 crop cycles in a year, we're getting 13 to 20.
2: How much is it, this all this stuff going to cost? So when it comes out, is like you can have like a the Rolls Royce tomato that costs
3: ten bucks per. <laughs> yeah, we, so we call this twenty dollar lettuce versus two dollar lettuce. Yeah, that's one of the things that drives us is that we're not here to increase the price of food. We're here to drive it down and get people you know super healthy, nutrient rich diets, make that accessible to all seven point three billion people, not just the top point zero one percent. We don't enter the market until our until that specific crop, like say a particular heirloom lettuce, is market competitive, where we can we can price lower than at least fifty percent of what's sold in the market. In a
2: city, for example. That's right. Right. Like if right. we go if we go into because New York. Because there's being or competitive London. with Whole Foods, but there's also being competitive with Trader Joe's. That's, that's right.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So 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 we'll look at like a London, for example and say, okay, for this crop, strawberries or lettuce or spring mix or whatever it is, for some of these crops, we can actually price lower than all of the market. You know, the big difference here is that if you look at the the way the chain works today, because the growing is so centralized in a few places, like there are only five Mediterranean climates on the planet. The Mediterranean climate is so meaningful to get people affordable food that the U.S., for example, we would import about 75% of our fresh produce if it weren't for California. Oh, wow. But because of California, we only import 35%. However, in California, like the rest of the world, we have run out of land in the places where it's economic to grow these crops. So that 35% a decade ago was much lower. It was, you know, like roughly half. So if you look at seed into the home, 30 to 45% of the value of fresh fruits and vegetables is attributable to trucks and distribution centers. So we're essentially taking 30 to 45%. Just right off the top. Right, right. off the top, yeah.
2: And cre- recreating kind of like a super duper Ibiza in a warehouse without the nightclubs. Kind of <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah,
3: that's right. Yeah,
2: exactly. This sounds like it requires a lot of energy. Is that your, your biggest cost?
3: It does. It is. In other words, is this green, quote unquote? Yes, because the way to think about this is, yes, we use a lot of energy. This is an energy trade off. So the reason why 30 to 45% of the value of what's in the store today is trucks and distribution centers, I mean, that's largely energy. But it's one of the dirtiest forms of energy on the planet, which is dirty truck fuel. So essentially what we're doing is we're saying we're using clean grid energy in exchange for dirty truck fuel. Was this a hard idea to sell initially when you're going around a venture
2: capitalist? Did people... Absolutely.
3: Yeah, because anyone who's investing in something has to go through kind of like a three-step process. It's first, are we as a team going to invest in this industry? Then B, what do we consider to be a great investment in this industry? What are the set of criteria? And then C, does this company fit within... That spectrum, this industry is just so new, and to some people, it's compelling. But gosh, is this is this something that makes sense? And you're asking similar questions, like, gosh, how could it make sense to build a farm and pay for energy when people are ostensibly getting the sun for free outside? But then once once you're able to show, hey, we've run out of land in the places where it's economic to grow these crops. And while no one is actually writing the Sun a check, the Sun is imposing a particular supply chain on us that costs a lot of money, you know, 30 to 45% of uh, the cost being trucks and, and warehouses, for example. It wasn't easy. I mean, we, you know, it takes people a while to because we've known one form of agriculture for 10,000 years.
2: Well, that's why I think it's, the reason I ask is it does seem like there's more and more of this technology, venture capital kind of looking beyond tech yeah. into other industries that as you say i mean farming is bigger and more mechanized but it's effectively the same yes since we started farming yeah. As yeah humans.
3: yeah you've had there've been a couple big innovation points you've had like the steel plow in 1837 john deere in the 1890s the tractor came about in the 1940s you had chemicals like fertilizers and pesticides and in the 1980s we had you know genetic modification added to the mix And those have really been the the, the big drivers of efficiency in ag. And this is really the next place that we go. Another thing we're solving for is food security. And that means a lot of different things. I mean, it's obvious what that means on, say, the Arabian Peninsula. But it means something actually here in the United States and in mature economies like Korea or Japan. So the average age of a grower here in the United States is 60 It's a dying industry. They're dying. In Korea, it's 66. In Japan, it's 68. And that's because... Because farming sucks. Yeah. As economies have opened up options for people where they have more control over their livelihood, why would you go into a business where you have no control over your livelihood? And not only that, it's hard to get a bank loan to buy or start a business running a 1,000 or 2,000 acre farm, which is now the minimum size you need in order to have a profitable business. And you can't go to bank and say, hey, I'm a 35-year-old and want to start this massive business. And then if you say, well, how about a 50-acre farm? They say, well, that's not going to make any money, so we're not going to lend you that money either.
2: And by the way, if there's a drought or not enough rain, you're screwed.
3: That's right. A lot of catastrophic risk. So is this the future? For many crops, it is. What's going to be incredibly stunning for people is the speed at which much of what they eat is grown in this way like leafy greens and and fruits like strawberries and the tomatoes that you're talking about it's going to start there but I will tell you that the number of crops that we are adding quarter by quarter, quarter that are market competitive is pretty stunning the difference just between last year and this year is remarkable actually I look forward to the tomatoes All right yeah you you like them <laughs> yeah yeah you, you'll you'll find it hard to put down the strawberries too <laughs>
2: And that's it. hope you enjoyed the conversation. It's one of the more fascinating operations uh, I've seen in a while, I must admit. And uh, Plenty is one of those kind of new wave of companies that are starting to grow up out here that are moving beyond the traditional worlds of tech, like telecoms and media, you know, moving beyond the screen in your hand or on the desk and into the real world. Um, so I think there's lots of things like this surprising uses of technology that we're going to start to see. So exciting times. Um, but I digress to more important matters like podcast reviews, please go to Apple podcasts and do one for Danny in the Valley. It helps. And as always, you can find me elsewhere on Twitter at the handle at Danny Fortson in the Sunday times newspaper every weekend. And of course, online,